If you have an interest in horses and love learning more about horses, the horse industry, teaching, or even managing your own horse business, then you're in the right place. We would love you to join us on our mission, which is to improve the lives of horses around the world through the education of riders, handlers, and trainers. So get comfortable, listen in, and enjoy. If you have the same vision as International Horse College, which is to have a world where people safely appreciate, respect and enjoy their horses, and the horses appreciate, respect and enjoy their people, then have a look at their website, internationalhorsecollege.com, registered training organisation 31352. Now, Jonna, how are you today? We've got Jonna McLean back on. Jonna, you're just such a regular here. You're giving us so much information here. I'm just really enjoying it. How are you anyway? I'm very well, Greenwich. You've caught me in a good time. I'm packing to go away again, as usual. Yep, yep, yep. We'll sort of catch you in between. Where are you off to this time? I've just come back from Perth and now I'm going to Hobart. Okay, all right. And I know that you're off to New Zealand soon as well, aren't you? Yes, that's right, after Hobart, exactly. Yep, yep, yep. All right, now, John, we've gone through, we've got this young horse, you know, just sort of carrying on. And for anyone that hasn't been listening to John, or I would urge you to go to horsechats.com and search for Jonna, you'll be able to go right back through. Now, he started off, we found out a bit more about Jonna. Then we talked about just the initial foal handling. Then a bit more as the foal gets a bit older. And then um, we talked about weaning the foal, then going from weaning to a yearling, and then just starting the young horse under saddle. Things to remember about training your horse, because it's always pretty important just to revise that. And we've gone over just the 10 essentials when breaking in or starting the young horses. We've gone from the round yard to open areas and then we've gone back and revised that because that's a really important step. And that's often a step, as I understand, Jonna, that there can be potential problems in that area. You know, of course, you think everything's going well and then all of a sudden you've got this big, strong horse underneath you and you're riding it out and things can go pretty badly unless you know what you're going on, unless you know how to fix up these potential problems before you even get there. Is that right? That's absolutely right, Glennis. And the major reason why things can go wrong is because the horse's ambition is to take away the pressure and it will try any number of things to try and do that. Mm -hmm. So we have to try and make sure that we keep the boundaries as clear as we possibly can be be really consistent, but be really fair as well. Now, I know the amount of revision that you do and you go back and just get, you know, get all the buttons working, make sure that's all okay. But can we talk about now what could possibly go wrong? And if you can tell us how to fix them or how to deal with them or how to stop them, but shying, you know, a horse shying, just, you know, briefly, I suppose, describe shying, you know, what it is, but how can we fix that or how can we stop it or what can we do? Okay. Well, Clarence, shying is usually a product of the horse um, either being afraid of some sort of stimuli in the bushes or something's gone past them, something unusual, something that's not in its library of context. So we have to be sure that we're, that's why whenever we, we did that second ride out and then we did the revision, that was really to make sure that we could not just do it once but it was replicatable. So shying has various forms and most horses when they shy the majority of horses tend to shy a little bit more from right to left than they do the other way i'm not saying they don't do it the other way but um, their favorite way is usually left which is probably the most 
um, malleable way or flexible way that the horse is uh, born with. So you tend to find most horses can canter on the left quite well, but the right canter lead can be a little bit problematic in the beginning stages. So shying is really, by definition, a deviation of line that you intend to take as a rider. And the horse then, um, through either being scared or it's trialling something to see whether it can get away with um, doing a certain action pattern because if the action pattern is profitable, in other words, the pressure goes away, yep. then it will repeat that. So, you know, that's just part of trial and error learning process in the horse that we talked about earlier. So there are certain degrees of shying and the first one really is just a cat's flat where the horse just jumps on the spot or he only goes astride um, to the left or to the right of your line. And they're relatively easy to correct because then um, what we have to try and make sure we do is then once the horse has landed, um, then retrieve the line using the turn rein only and getting back to the original line and then deciding whether we actually go forward from that point or whether we'd prefer the horse to study what it's looking at and then become a little bit more confident with it and then to go forward from the line. Okay, okay. So you're sort of saying that the reasons for it will vary and then what we should be doing should be appropriate to that reason. Yes, you did yeah. much better than what I did, exactly. <laughs> I like the way you described the cat splat. Yes, they're the ones that usually catch us out when we're leading a horse and he gets a fight and he does a cat splat. And they're the ones that usually break bones in your feet, in your right foot. Yes, yes. Um, and they're the ones, you know, if the horse is shod, um, as I was, I was speaking to somebody the other day, and that, their horse did exactly the same thing with studs on, and that would be just terrible. Oh, I can't, no. Oh, no. Oh, that would be yeah. terrible. Yeah. But um, that was just a cat splat with a horse. Um, a cat ran out of a barn, and the horse got a fright and did a cat splat. And usually, you know, one leg um, goes, uh, the near fore goes left, and the right fore goes right and to stabilize themselves, and they get a bit of a fright. But the mm-hmm. amount of force involved is quite considerable. So, you know, it's often safer to feel those sorts of things when you're on the horse, Yep, um, yep I believe. Yep. Okay. Now, the next one we're going to talk about is bolting. You know, if we can just talk about bolting, yes. it's not bolting the feed, but um, talk about what bolting is. Yes, that's right. Bolting, we don't mean bolting or gavaging his feed. We mean um, where he, um, where the horse is now just going to use its full power and potential against you to be able to depart. Um, the scene, and it could be from behind, so the horse may be going along your line, but you can't stop with your reins. Mm-hmm. So there's two there's two areas to this. First of all, usually the horses that tend to get low in the pole and are already heavy in the bridle, and their stop buttons are not very uh, not light at all. They're the ones that we usually try this as an evasion. So the horses that tend to put their heads on their chests are the most difficult ones. And certainly the other ones are where the horses just take, it uh, feels as if they take the bridle between their teeth. Um, not that they do, but um, it feels like that. And it doesn't matter how much pressure you apply, you can't get any reaction. So depending on the severity of the problem um, and how skilled the rider is and how converse the horses are bolting, you know, if it's been well-practiced, then you'll need a professional rider to to, to conquer this because you can apply force, but if you apply force straight away where the um, arousal level is at its highest, you probably won't make any difference to the horse. Mm-hmm. So if it's possible for bolting um, uh, anything that's involving speed, we have to make sure that the obstacles and the traction and the area where the horse is going along 
is good enough for you to be able to then have that discussion with your reins and say, no, I want you to slow down. And that can cause all sorts of problems because riders tend to turn first, changes the traction, and the horses slip over. And you see this on bitumen roads a lot. Mm -hmm. I've seen it quite a lot myself. So it means, depending on the severity, and what I tend to do is that if the horse does go, I don't immediately pull the reins. I wait and make sure that everything is okay um, for me to do so. Then I react. I think it's a little bit like Glenis driving a car along the road. The worst thing you can do is just react and jump on the on the brakes of the car. Yes. You have to study the circumstances and then use judgment as to how much pressure you use. Mm-hmm. This is exactly the same. Mm-hmm. And that requires a fair bit of um, calmness on the rider's part and, and certainly a amount of skill. But the other part of it is, is that generally speaking, if you can make the horse's pole come up when you apply the rain pressure, so you may have to use a, a slightly raised rain as well as pressure as well, that was going to have a whole lot uh, better effect on being able to prevent the legs from going faster. And uh, it'll, it'll prevent the horse from being able to tow you in that classic round frame. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, okay. I'm just thinking the amount of times that you've revised the stop button, stop the reverse, you know, and um, while people might think, oh, Johnny, you're such a nag revising that again, but it's so important. And I think here you're just sort of going down, you know, saying these really do need to be revised, don't they, you know, to make sure that this isn't going to happen. Like it could be cured before it even gets going, couldn't it? That's exactly right, Glennis. And I don't ever get on a horse without checking that. I just never, ever do. And I haven't. And I mean, I ride hundreds of horses a year and they're not all that familiar to me. And especially the ones that aren't familiar or the ones that I'm taking out into these circumstances for the first time, I really make sure that that stop button is really just coming from a light touch and it has an immediate effect on the legs. Because at the end of the day, when the turn and the stop and they're both rain signals, remember, when they're both light, you don't have these problems. For the horses that I've broken in and trained from the word go, and they've stayed really nice and light and and obedient from the rain systems all the way through, the first ride out is a complete piece of cake. Mm -hmm. They might look and get a little bit scared, but they don't parting, they don't try bolting. So it's really... You know, this is the territory of the scared horse. And then when you have to ask yourselves, well, why is he scared? Why do we put ourselves in that situation for number one? And number two, were our buttons good enough to be able to thwart that? Yep, yep, yep. Okay, now the next one we've got is bucking. And everyone's going to say, oh, sure, we know what a buck is. But in, like, Australia, New Zealand, I'm sure that you travel enough to say, look, there's this other word. We sort of differentiate between bucking and pig rooting, don't we? You know, if we talk about pig rooting, it's different to bucking. So can we talk about bucking first and, yep. you know, what it is, how do we stop it, what we can do to prevent it, but then we'll talk about pig rooting and the difference in what pig rooting is compared to bucking. Okay. Um, bucking is when all fours leave the ground mm-hmm. and usually the pole is lower than the wither, so it is a true buck. And people often mistake pig rooting for bucking, but let's just say that at this point all four legs are off the ground and the horse's head has gone gone down lower than the wither. Usually when this happens, it's because the horse has objected to going forward from the leg guide or uh, the saddle has slipped and the girth is flanking it or something like that or something unusual. But without those unusual or or rare occurrences, it's usually a result of the horse being asked to go forward from the leg 
and the option for the horse is to buck, which immediately removes the leg of the rider and usually the seat, and mm-hmm. if they're really good at it, the entire rider. So it's very, very profitable. Oh, profitable for the horse, yes. <laughs> yes, they're not yeah. profitable for the person. <laughs> no. Exactly. no. Okay, now exactly. tell us about the pig rooting. So pig rooting is actually where the front legs stay on the ground, and the horse can do that with a fairly high head carriage anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and basically yeah. all he does is what we used to call in bicycle terms an endo, um, which is where he his hind legs come up and he stays um, grounded with his front legs. And that is also profitable because that removes the seat of the rider and also the the legs and uh, the the legs of the, or the go forward button um, aid removes that. So, of course, when the horse does this, and it may trial pig rooting, and then if that has enough profit in it for the horse, it may then follow through and buck. So pig rooting can often precede bucking as well. So it can be a little sign to say, no, often when I put my leg on, um, my horse doesn't go forward straight away and he pig roots, then there will be discussions down the track um, with the rider and the horse as to whether that actually gets worse or not and, and culminates into bucking. It doesn't always. Some horses are just chronic pig rooters and tail swishes, mm-hmm. um, and they never, ever buck. But for the young horse, you don't know whether one is going to lead to the other. Yep, yep. Stop. I need to interrupt this chat for a hot-off-the-press notification. That is, that the latest version of the book, 101 Careers in the Horse Industry, is now available, and the best news is that it's a free download. So if you work in the horse industry, if you have a plan to work in the horse industry and have a career in the horse industry, or if you know someone who plans to have a career in this fabulous industry, then this is an essential book for you to read now and then keep as a reference as you progress through your career. With over 100 jobs to choose from, you'll probably find at least one that you'd happily do without being paid. So simply go to internationalhorsecollege.com, scroll down to the bottom of the page and click on the 101 careers in the horse industry button to receive your free career book. Imagine, maybe one day you could be a guest on Horse Chats. I mean, ideally it's it's not going to happen because we've done all the previous training, but, you know, we've got to keep talking about these potential problems and what the solutions are. Well, the other profitable thing for pig rooting is... Not only does if the rider is in a three-point position where the where the seat is engaged and the legs are on the um, against the sides of the horse, and then he pig roots, the very first thing that will happen was that the momentum of the pig root will go up by the horse, uh, by the rider's um, bottom, and of course throw their entire upper body forward and, and over the pommel of the saddle, mm-hmm. and of course then that will take the leg aid off. But it usually also results in the involuntary cuddle of the rider around the horse's neck. So they usually get thrown onto the horse's neck. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of see how profitable this is, and especially in jumping a lot of horses with exuberance in the first couple of jumps, they might um, pig root or they might stick their head down and have a little bit of a pronk. And that's where you know it really pays to be stable, but it also pays, and I was just going to say, I never ever ride a horse where I'm actually locked into the three-point position. I always have my stirrup short enough that I can take my seat out. So in fixing this one, if the horse is inclined to pig root off the leg aid, 
then I always make sure that I'm riding in a, a fairly light two-point position. So then the peg routing actually doesn't affect my upper body at all and I can keep my leg on or I can use my tapping of my whip or whatever it is, but the pressure doesn't get removed and so then it's not profitable for the horse. Mm, mm, mm. That's a good one, yep. Mm. What about jibbing? Tell us a little bit about jibbing because, you know, I know different people might not, you know, get this. Yeah. yeah. Jibbing... I, and I mean, that is one of the things with this topic and this conversation for this time around, Dennis, that I had to really make sure that we uh, reasonably define these things so as mm, we don't get yes. confused between, you know, because what some people will call jibbing, other people won't. So jibbing is where the horse just uh, just refuses to go forward. He says, no, I'm not going to go there, and it doesn't matter how much pressure you apply, I'm not going um, in that direction. So it's just a refusal to go forward. There's there's no real action pattern behind it. Mm-hmm. It's just saying, no, I don't want to go. And it can happen at canter. I've had horses that will canter and then canter along, and then you ask them to go faster or you ask them to do um, something, and then all of a sudden they'll be accelerated and just going to walk and then halt, and then say, no, I'm not doing anymore. I'm finished. Yeah. So that's a jipping horse. Again, uh, we underline this go button thing and, and we've talked about um, how important it is to make sure you're stopping the go button. It's important for the horses that are obedient off the leg aid, this doesn't happen. And for the horses that um, come to you as jibbing horses, the thing that will actually really conquer the horse and prevent it from jibbing is to make sure that the horse is not just obedient from the leg, but when they are jibbing, that the pressure doesn't go away and it doesn't matter how you go via turn or you have to tap with your whip or, or somebody comes to along to lead you or you've got to get the horse to come beside you. Don't take the pressure away until you get some sort of reaction that is not jibbing, in other words, going forward. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And I know you, you've talked about, you know, overfacing your horse here. It's not necessarily overfacing and jumping, is it? It's overfacing with what they're doing, yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, I, I I nearly came unstuck uh, not that long ago. I was um, asked to go and ride a strange horse into the ocean, and the horse had been going really, really well everywhere. It'd been going well on the arena and in the indoor and cross country, and I'd done obstacles with him and all that sort of thing. But the waves were just too terrifying for him. He just mm. he could not believe that water could behave <laughs> like that. He just thought he just had a complete mental breakdown. So rather than get in there and have this massive battle where I've got to use massive amounts of pressure, I just stood there and looked at it, and then he said, well, if you're not going to do anything, I'm going to leave. And I said, well, with my turn around, no, sorry, you're not allowed to turn and leave. He's just going to stay looking at it, and I kept making him look at it. And then once his ears started to become less pricked and more lateral and he was hearing other things other than the waves breaking, then I just looked one step forward. It took me half an hour to get to the water's edge, mind you, but I didn't have to get off to do it because I just picked my moments by studying the horse's posture and uh, reactions to what was going on around him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, rearing, describe it, I suppose, but what sort of brings on the rearing? Rearing can have multiple causes like most things, but um, uh, when we say rearing, what we're really talking about now, I just talked about um, pig rooting before, it's exactly the opposite of um of that. So instead of pig rooting, the horse now goes on its hind legs. And the danger with this, and I made a note in one of my points that, you know, if your horse um, has this propensity to rear, and of course you see a lot of young horses rear in paddocks before they're even handled, the weanlings running around the paddock, they all practice rearing. So, you know, to some degree, it's, it's actually 
in their system anyway, but it's whether it turns out to be profitable or not for them. So rearing is where they rear on their hind legs and they go vertical. And, of course, everybody's fear being not just rearing is the horse staying over on top of them. And there's been plenty of those occur, and I've had them occur to me as well. So rearing is um, usually caused by the horse saying, no, I don't want to go there. So it's a form of jibbing, and then you increase the pressure, and instead of going forward, the horse says, well, what about if I rear? Mm. The great profitable point for the horse here is now he only has his hind legs on the ground, and if he wishes to, he can rotate on his hind legs and spin left or spin right or turn on his hind legs, and that gives him enough of a chance to be able to say, I can rear, you release the rein, you don't have any turn, uh, you don't have any contact with my mouth, therefore I can turn, and possibly now I can uh, run home and bolt as well. So rearing often in its worst form usually isn't just rearing, there's usually either a lavard, which is where the rider says, no, I don't. The rider says, I'd like to stop, and the horse says, No, I'm not stopping. And the rider makes them stop. Then the horse will rear and then levard and migrate a couple of meters on his hind legs or launch off his hind legs, which is what the varding is. And so he's, he won't stop. He'll just keep going on his hind legs. Again, the danger is bringing the horse over on top of you. You've got um, contact on his mouth or the upper body um, of the rider isn't secure enough to be able to manage the process. That's that's when it becomes really dangerous. Mm. And also, there are horses out there that will throw themselves over as well. And they're probably, you know, for a professional rider, uh, we call those flippers. Um, and that's the term that we use down here. And they're horses that just chronically rear and flip over. And I've seen horses rear and flip over and, um, you know, self-destruct themselves with that process. And, and we've seen that in leading as well, you know having a horse that will try to lead it into the float and it doesn't want to come forward to pressure, they'll try rearing as well. So mm-hmm. it's quite an ingrained thing. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. What about your horse goes out and they just start to jog? What's the jogging? What can we do to stop that? Jogging is one of these things that we find with a lot of horses, especially ex-race horses that haven't done a lot of walking, that they, they think that the world should go by at their speed and the rider has a disagreement with them and says, no, well, I'd like to go slower, but the horse's brain is so wide and its arousal level is so high that um, it can't prevent its legs from doing anything less than a trot or a jog. And sometimes I'll even canter on the spot. So jogging is really just a case where the horse doesn't understand um, what going slow is all about. So it's, it's, not, it's also a case of having not a very good stop button. Of course, we know that. But it's also getting the horse accustomed to the circumstances where that arousal level isn't high, then the jogging won't happen. So if I have a chronic jogging horse, and and I get quite a few of these, especially horses that have been allowed to run a lot or games horses, horses that have been galloped a lot generally jog. So if they're jogging a lot, then what I'll do is I'll release the rein. And if they speed up, then I'll squeeze the rein back to the tempo that I wanted. And then as soon as I get that, then I'll release the rein again. And I'll have that discussion at jog with the horse and saying, if you're going to jog, jog in self-carriage, but I'm not holding you there. You can just jog by yourself on a light contact. And generally, when you've established that, the horse goes, well, it's far easier to walk, actually. Yes, less energy used. Go there now. Have a look. What about if they're out there and you can sort of feel that something's going on? They start reefing at the reins. If I talk about reefing at the reins, you know what I mean. I know what I mean. 
but can you explain it just to anyone that may not know what reefing at the reins means? Yeah, reefing at the rein basically means that the horse is in conflict with the signals that are occurring from the rein or the leg because reefing can can be caused by either confusion of, of any of the signals or even the circumstance. So it's not always easy to pinpoint what the cause is, but if the area is familiar and we can put that aside as a as a reasonable cause, then it's probably most likely that the horses um having a discussion with the rider saying, no, I don't want to stop, I don't want to stand, no, I don't want to walk, or I want to trot faster and pull the reins by throwing their head down and forward and pulling the reins either out of the horse's, out of the rider's hand so the horse then has freedom, Mm -hmm. which is immediately profitable. You couldn't train it better, really. (laughs) Um, Or they pull the rider forward out of their seat, and, of course, then they get a loopy rein as well. And generally, this is one of the most common ones, and that's why I put it there, because it is also a precursor. Generally, the horses that don't stop and don't park um, uh, will reef as well. So the horses that will push down into the bridle and lower their pole in a downward transition nearly will always reef at some point and they'll have no consistent contact at walking. Of course, walk is the most difficult gait to achieve really, really well, and it's the one that nobody, uh, I shouldn't say nobody, um, you know, there aren't many um, uh, times that I can think in my life where I've actually spent enough time at walk, and, and the more the older I get, the more time I spend at walk. So now I spend 20 minutes at walk. So in a lesson, I walk for 20 minutes because walk and canter is similar. But that is where the reefing will potentially come from, and that's where you'll feel it. So to cure that, if you can make the horse's legs slow down or if he's reefing at halt, then squeeze the rein and ask him to take one backward step every time he touches the rein. It, 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 it will be done in no time soon as long as he's not in uh, a hugely high arousal state. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you've got three or four of those, then change the topic, move on, do something else, then come back and revisit it. But what we're really saying here is the reins go from the bit to the rider's hands and the signal should only travel from the hands to the bit. The signal shouldn't come from the horse to the rider's hands. Yes, yes, I understand that. Yep. Now, if we're out, we've taken our horse from the round yard and gone out, but they're inattentive out there, yeah, looking, maybe changing his speed, changing his line. Yeah, what can we do there? Okay, and, and that's probably the most common thing that will happen because all of a sudden, especially if you've broken in your horse or you've trained your young horse to go under saddle in an enclosed round yard, all of a sudden going out of the yard is highly stimulating. Mm-hmm. So what I recommend to people is to try and lead and train their horse and groundwork everywhere you're going to ride in the first ride. But if that isn't possible and you do ride the horse out, and it's just looking everywhere or the environment is very stimulating, like I was talking about the beach or there's polo on or, or there's a whole heap of horse show jumping, whatever it is, or it might be just the time of day and, and there's birds everywhere and chooks and it's a really stimulating environment. Think about just by studying your environment, what do you think for your horse's education at that point, what is a doable ride? And it doesn't matter if you abandon the ride. But if you proceed and the horse continually snatches the left rein or the right rein, which is what we're talking about with the inattentive, so it's a bit like reefing one rein now. Yep, so the horse yep. is now 
seeing if he can actually reef one rain than the other rain. Again, the profit in the change of flexion means that he can then look where he wants to. And then if he can look where he wants to, well, then there's a fairly good chance he can make his legs go where he's looking, mm. and that's probably not where the rider wants. Okay. So, yep. Yep, yep. I'll, I'll just add a little bit more to that, Dennis, yeah. is that the reason with the rain is then you can say, okay, now I don't want you to look at it, um, but then it'll be really quite difficult um, for the rider to be able to manage because then the horse will start shying off their line. So I don't mind if they stand there and look. And then if I find that the the ducks on the dam or, or, or chooks or whatever it is, and I say to myself, oh, you are looking at the chooks. Okay, so let's just stand and look at the chooks. You're not allowed to move your legs, but you can look at the chooks. So I just let them look at the chooks, but I don't let them move their legs. And then once I can feel that they're starting to look at other things, then I say, okay, back to work, right on my line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, okay. What about if it's, I'm thinking, just a delay to the aids, the horse is not on the aids in the same way that they should be. What can we do there? Yeah, and that's probably the million-dollar question for, for most listeners is that how can I get my horse to the point that I've, we've been talking about? Mm. And that is... Take the horse into an environment that it is completely familiar with, whether it be an indoor or a dressage arena or a paddock or somewhere where it's not stimulating for him at all. So it means that there will be possibly no excuses or likely excuses that the horse will use this to be delayed from the leg. So then there's a couple of ways of doing it. And the way that I currently do it is that I usually find that when I use my leg aid, the horse is delayed. But then when I examine the whip cues as well, the whip cues are also really delayed. So I operantly train um, with the whip cue. So I don't use any leg and then I just go tap, 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 tap. And I can't how many taps it takes. And sometimes it takes 40. Just okay. tap, 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 tap. And yeah. the horse might kick out and then it'll go forward a step. And then I'll stop and say, well, good work. That was good. You moved forward two steps. That was mm, great. Mm. Then I'll reapply it again. And that number will halve. Yep. at least half, possibly even, and may even be 10 or 15. And then after that, as long as your whip tapping goes away, the moment you get the desired outcome, which is walking or stepping, within four or five goes, the horse will be going from about three taps. Okay, yep. And then I'll do that in trot as well. Yep. And I'll do it in, the, in my left hand and my right hand because I need to know the whip cue behind my leg on the near side and also the offside. I check that as well. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then to reprogram my leg aid, then... Now that I can go tap, tap, and the horse walks, and then I can go tap, tap, and the horse trots, I still haven't used any leg at this stage. Now I'm ready. Now that it only takes two or three taps to get the horse to go light taps behind my leg, the sight is really important. So I don't let it go anywhere near the flank of the hindquarter. It's directly behind my leg. Um, Then I'll go light touch with my calf, and then I'll go tap, tap. But I'm always prepared to go light touch with my calf and then go tap, tap, even if the horse is quite quick from the cue, but it won't be. It'll be it'll be delayed off the calf because that's what it presented to you as. Mm-hmm. So it'll go calf aid, tap, tap, and then it'll go walk. But you'll find that now you've been going just calf cue and then tap, tap. If you've got enough time to tap, I do. But if I don't have enough time, then I've achieved my result. I've now reprogrammed the horse's response from a calf touch yep. by using tapping. Okay. So that's how I reprogram it, and it's always really successful, and it's not adrenalizing, and it's not scary, and the horses get it straight away. Mm-hmm. You can usually fix these horses in one session if you know what you're doing. Okay, okay. And with a lot of these things, you know, it's all right for the trainer to get on to fix it, but then we've still got to 
teach the rider how to consistently ride the same way. That, that's exactly right, and that's where I spend most of my time. And if I see that the rider's skill set is pretty good and their core balance is pretty nice and I don't see any real reasons as to why um, I need to get on the horse, then I will definitely train it on the ground. And sometimes mm-hmm. I'll even illustrate it by me using the whip on the ground while they do a calf touch. Okay. And that helps me keep in touch as well to make sure that the riders then don't override the response and keep applying their leg because usually that's the cause. The horse has become numb to the leg or dead to the leg aid. So there's been too much um, leg and not enough response happening and slowly, surely it fades off your left you. <laughs> and that's okay. how it got there. Okay. Now, just the last thing, you, you have sort of talked about these outside influences that the horse may not have seen before. You talked about the ocean and, you know, maybe there's the chooks and we just stand and look. But is there any time where we may not stand and just look and let the horse realise that there's nothing going on? Is that always what we do with the outside influences? Yes. And and there comes a time, Glennis, like that classic Neil Young song, that um, there comes a time when you end up being able to have the horse so attuned to your age, the outside influences don't have an effect. Mm -hmm. And that's the power of having an obedient horse. So you sort of took the words out of my mouth because in a lot of ways, when the horse is obedient to all these cues, they're not distracted at all because the ears are lateral and they're waiting for messages to come from you. Because at the end of the day, what you and I are discussing now really is it's who's going to influence the horse, the environment or the rider. And what we're trying to do is influence the horse. Mm -hmm. But then if the environment is able to influence the horse, you can be absolutely sure there's some severe gaps in the horse's training that have allowed it to do that, or in the beginning anyway. Yeah, yeah, because I know, you know, right through the horse's training, you know, the very first bit we always say go back, revise, you know, go over what you – before you progress on. Yeah, yeah, and I know that your overall message, you've gone back, you've retrained. Every time you see the horse, you go back, you retrain, but you keep progressing on. And I think we can get a bit ambitious, you know, with our progress, and you've talked about not overfacing the horse. If you overface the horse, then then you're sort of almost asking for them to resist and to um you know come across across a few problems, aren't we? Absolutely. And look, the biggest problem that I come across is not so much the horses have an issue, but everybody's in a hurry. Yeah. But yeah. they were in a hurry. Why didn't they start six months earlier? Mm, mm, it's a mm. simple question, and I don't tolerate people that are in a hurry training horses because if you're in a hurry. Your judgment goes, your temper gets hardened, and then you're not training. You're actually training the horse to be scared of you. And I don't want any part of those sorts of systems. I think that's ridiculous. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. All right. So we've just got to remember that the pressure is going to motivate the reaction. You've got to train yep. him to do the right thing and then release the instant that you get the correct response. That's right. And we've underlined that so many times, but now it's because the horse is going. You can't be haphazard. You have to be really consistent. And at the end of the day, it doesn't take that long for the riders to be able to pre-program their, say, subconscious or those conscious habits into um, uh, unconscious ones. So they're just a normal reaction to release the pressure, to apply the pressure, to make your pressure um, have some sort of gradient when you need to. They're not difficult things to learn. And once you learn them, you do them automatically. You can, mm-hmm. You can... Um, you know, talk at the same time and 
and do rising trot and all that sort of stuff, and we can still do stuff like that. So yep, yep. that's the advantage of learning anything is it becomes automatic. Yep, yep, okay, okay. All right, it's very good. It's good that you've introduced it here because I suppose this is the part where they're more likely to have problems before mm. we progress on. So we've we've talked about having them from that nice, safe round yard going out to the open. Yep. Uh, we've done that a couple of times and now we've talked about the, the potential problems. Hopefully we don't come across them and the solutions. What's next for our next chat, John? Well, that's good. We have to decide what this horse is going to be used for now. So that's an exciting okay. point in our life because it means that now we've got this horse going from a weanling right through to now and now we're deciding how we do that. So mm-hmm. what I'm wondering is, why don't we say that this horse is um, uh, maybe it's a thoroughbred that we've, that we've got that has never raced, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we're, let's try and decide through doing various things with the horse what we think is natural. Um, natural abilities. Natural abilities yeah. are. Okay. So, okay. And then... Because, you know, and these things change through time. Of course, the horse gets better and better with certain things. And then you say, oh, you know, here I was thinking that he was a racehorse, but he's actually a really good dressage horse. Or mm-hmm. he's a really good dressage horse, but now I think he's actually a good camp drafter. Okay. Um, so okay. maybe we can approach it that way and evaluate our horse. And we'll presume at this stage that it's three years old. So we can start thinking about what sort of things can we do to try and find out what is your natural abilities are mm-hmm. and where his weakest points and what are the things we um, want to make sure that we have got in order to do well and be either competitive or just give us pleasure or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Yep, looking forward to that one. So um, I will say goodbye for now. Now, before you go, and I know you're busy, I know you where you're off to Hobart and then New Zealand, but if people do want to contact you, what's the best way? Look, um, I've got a Train to Win Facebook page, so they can send me a send me a message on that. Lots of people mm-hmm. do that as well. Yep. Um, and my, uh, I've got an email address, which is johnmcclain at gmail dot com. I think you've got that on your site as well. Yes. Yep. That's the safest way to get hold of me. Phone is notoriously difficult because I'm not always in in range, or mm. I'm not always able to access my phone. So, um, yeah, either of those ways, no problems at all. Brilliant. Okay, and um, we'll have those details on your page as well. So just go to horsechats.com, search for Jonna, J-O-N-N-A, and um, you'll find those contact details at the bottom of Jonna's page. So thanks, Jonna. Thanks again, and I'm looking forward to the next chat, that's for sure. I look forward to it as well. Thanks, Glenn, for your time. Okay, bye. Bye. If you've enjoyed this chat, then please comment, rate, and subscribe. If you'd like any changes or recommendations for guests, then please contact us through horsechats.com. And while you're online, have a look at the government-accredited courses at internationalhorsecollege.com. Registered Training Organisation 31352. Remember that our comments and instructions are general in nature and do not take into consideration your individual horses or your individual ability and circumstances. If you enjoyed this podcast, then please leave your comment below.